Austin, Texas. I'm Christopher Schmidt. And on today's show, we have a special live recording from the CSS DevConf 2016. It's the wrap-up panel that has lots of great questions from the audience for an amazing array of speakers. Before we get started, some things I'd like you to know. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at Telject, T-E-L-E-J-E-C-T. Also, follow CSS DevConf on Twitter. It's simply at CSS DevConf for information coming soon about 2017's event and our call for speakers. Also, I want to let you know that you can set it and forget it with a non-breaking space show newsletter whenever a new show is ready. Be notified in your inbox by signing up at newsletter.nonbreakingspace.tv. Of course, you can always find show notes and links at nonbreakingspace.tv as well. And thank you for subscribing, commenting, and liking, and telling others about Nonbreaking Space Show on iTunes. Now, live from San Antonio, Texas, on with the show. Uh, so for this hour, uh, we just throw stuff at them. Uh, that's always nice. Uh, as a way of saying things. Um, <laughs> so uh, this is the time where you can ask questions uh, to speakers about uh, the topic they talked about, uh, uh, questions that you may have come up by maybe watching another speaker's topic and you want to cross pollinate uh, some knowledge, what that be, uh, to what we come up with. Uh, there, there are no really fast rules to this, so ask away. My, there is one, but there is one no-no, and that is don't ask questions about the future. So, like, what's the future of X, Y, Z? Because that's not really practical at all. And people can just, you know, people can just talk forever about the future of X, Y, Z, and it doesn't really help you out at all. So, uh, with that, does anyone want to start off? Blue shirt in the back. Um, I learned how to program originally uh, by doing view source. Okay. So, can you repeat the question? Oh. So what is my our, our opinion on open source and put, posting everything basically on GitHub? And what is the opinion of uh, larger corporations getting involved in this? So I don't think you have to do like an open source project and definitely, you know, and contribute to, a, a, you know, you can put it on your own GitHub, but definitely post it for other people because that's the way we're learning. That's the way you're probably learning um, and give back. And large corporations, I work at one. I really don't like them, so I don't care what they do. Um, so I don't really have an opinion on that. So I think that uh, without open source, a lot of us would not be sitting here. I would definitely not be sitting here. Uh, open source is the way to go. Um, I currently work at a company. I'm not 100% happy, but at least I get to open source 90% of my work, and that's a really good feeling. I think a lot of companies should do more open source. And I think it's good that a lot of big companies are starting to get into that. Because it improves not only their own code, but kind of offers what, what's going on. I definitely agree with, uh, with all of that. I think open source is um, amazing. Um, and if any of you are interested in uh, contributing to open source, Hacktoberfest is happening right now. So if you are looking for a way... Uh, to start contributing and you don't know how uh, or how to get started, I would highly recommend you just just Google Hacktoberfest. You'll get to it. It has like a collection of repositories are looking for contributions uh, and um, specific issues that need help uh, for this have been also labeled Hacktoberfest so that you know that that is a safe place where you can go and make like your first contribution. So if you're interested and you want to learn more and you want to do it, uh, I would say right now uh, through the end of October is a great way to get started. You also get free stickers if you do Hacktoberfest. Um, as a corporate shill who works at a giant 130-person company, um, every company can contribute to open source, and it's our collective responsibility to make sure that we find ways to do that. Every code base, no matter how large or how, or how small, has little bits and pieces that can be broken off that can provide value for other people. So look through your code and see what you can do to break away things that aren't like crazy, top secret business shit and give it to people for free. 
Um, I just wanted to contribute a, a resource. Actually, Kent C. Dodd uh, has a talk called How to Get Started Contributing in Open Source, and I think it's really good. So if you want to check that out, it's online. I just want to make one quick uh, note about the large companies contributing to open source. I think that's a really great idea. And obviously, Microsoft has been in kind of embracing that. And really great things come out of that because they you know, have really, really great developers. That's how they sort of became who they are. So uh, anytime any one of those companies wants to release something, I'm personally interested in seeing it. Uh, the question was, how do designers and how can designers and developers speak the same language? I guess is what you're trying to say, right? So we foster that communication through the style guide, and it's not just design and development; it's also with product. So um, we think of our style guide as like the meeting point between a lot of different parties. And once our style guide nomenclature is defined, say like uh, you have like an like an H1, right? That's like a like a, an atomic element. Then we don't have to debate what it should be anymore. Like once we develop a feature, we know that this is an H1. And it's, it's, it's not just a way for designers to, I guess, like control things or whatever, but like they can easily communicate those ideas and then engineering doesn't have to worry about details. So we can, we can um, more uh, rapidly iterate over that stuff. It's also an interesting way for product to communicate ideas because they might have this idea, but then it's like, you know, in sketching, like, do I write this box? Where, like, they already know what it's supposed to look like. They can take those ideas from the style guide and communicate those ideas to design, and then design complex development, and it's kind of like this whole nice cycle. Uh, I'm, well, I'm with a small company. And for me, uh, for me, well, for me and my coworker, we're both slightly design savvy. So we, so we kind of already speak a little bit of design of, kind of design and language. So it's pretty easy to sort of contribute, contribute in, in the discussion. And in some ways, you know, it, if there's one thing that I sort of think about is that, you know, we, it's not so much think like a designer or think like a developer. For me, I'm pretty, oh, what's that word? Omnivorous when it comes to information. I like looking at all other things, not just development, like, um, like, like, like UX or mobile accessibility. Um, earlier, this year, I went to the IA Summit, which is information architecture. So I have a lot. I just, I just like to look at other things, and that contributes to which is the, uh, the discussion that me and me and the designers have in terms of building our product. Hey, uh, I recently wrote a blog post titled "Your Team Needs a UX Engineer," um, and and it's rung a bell. I've had a lot of people tell me, "Yes, this is this is exactly it." My my point in that post was that um, we we're so our industry is so accustomed to building a team. Of savvy JavaScript developers, and we just kind of assume that collectively there's some CSS knowledge there, and and it doesn't really work out in practice that way. Um, you get a lot of teams that are really good at JavaScript and they don't have a clue what they're doing in CSS. Um, I think it's really important to have a key person who knows CSS, knows uh, accessibility, knows that sort of thing, and can act as sort of the liaison between the, the design team and the developer team. And do the translation, do the communication. Um, so when the designer says we need more white space, excuse me, we need more white space here or whatever, it's it's a technical-minded person on the team, but who's in tune with the design needs and say yes, there's there's value in what the designer's saying. Let's make it happen practically on the team. I think that's a really valuable role that I wish more teams would, would seek out. You'll get to you will get to the microphone. You will. Uh, I also. Uh, just something I've noticed from my short stints working in-house at companies and being on the road with clients is that a lot of times design and development are kept separate from one another. They're not even on the same floors at some companies. And it's hard to have respect for people you don't know. They're the other. You don't see them. They're obstructionists constantly sending tickets back to you because it's like, this isn't done right. And it, it's infuriating for both sides. So I would say spend time together, go to lunches together, uh, trade hostages, like send, hey, you, you like code, you like design, we're going to trade you for a bit, and you bring that knowledge back to us, and then you could have a kind of mouthpiece for the other half. But you have to respect one another, and you can't respect people you don't know, so get to know each other. I work for Wayfair, and we have about 4,000 people in our headquarters. It means that we have 
bunch of designers and developers and uh, UX people who just work for customer-facing applications. It means that a lot of communication. And some people, uh, some ideas get lost in translation. What we do? We do simple, something called JAD sessions, where before big projects or feature kicks off, we will have a team of a designer, developer, product manager, UX person, and we sit down together before we even start working on anything. We sit down together and we uh, use a whiteboard and we say, for example, it would be the form and we want this form work specifically in this way and uh, those elements would be uh, dynamic. Uh, this would be this and this and this requirement for the colors and fonts and style. And then after we finish the chat session, we can actually kick off our project. Uh, I think there's a lot of, um, not to beat a dead horse, but um, I think there's a lot of bias uh, in the uh, uh, job titles and the roles that people play within organizations. And I would say, don't let that um, interfere with the work that needs to be done. Um, a lot of times um, there's the whole debate about, you know, should designers code and all of that. And I, I, think, it's, I think it's a little bit of nonsense um, because I really think that designers have really great ideas about development. Uh, developers have really great ideas about design and how things should should interact. Um, so I think I would just say don't get caught up on somebody's role or job title. Um, they can have great ideas regardless of their role in an organization. The only quick thing I want to do everything that's been said is that I sometimes ask like people who have got design suggestions and things to articulate what they're trying to achieve so that I can understand it better, not just like this is what I want it to look like, but this is why. This is the goal I'm trying to achieve, whether it's a user interaction or um, even just some kind of theme or mood or, or whatever the design is conveying. Um, you know, make sure you, if you're a designer, make sure you tell developers that. If you're a developer, ask because it helps when you have an understanding of what everyone's trying to do. I recently organized an event at our local meetup centered just around this topic, and it struck a chord with a lot of people because we had a really good response. And I'm going to echo what everyone else is saying. You need to communicate between the teams. I mean, it's not separate teams. You are the design and the development team. You're working together to build out the product. And it's really best if your front-end devs, like, understand the preferences of the designers and, like, understand what's going on. And your designers know what's going on with the development and what your front-end developers like to do and what they have access to and stuff. So it's, I mean, just communicate become one team rather than two separate. So I think um, in any company, it's very important to have this maverick. Some person that's not only interested in all technologies, but actually pretty good at it. Sometimes people know that there should be maybe communications, but you don't know how to communicate. Uh, when I work with designers, I like to take ideas and put these ideas directly into prototypes, bring them back to the designers, and explain why a design might not be as perfect. Sometimes I don't even have to explain it, but the designer can actually see by interacting with something that I quickly created that the solution might not be possible or might not be perfect. And maybe that's one thing uh, that some people might keep in mind when the next time designing or going to a designer and saying, that's not going to work. They might not believe you, so just provide a prototype which basically takes maybe 10 to maybe 30 minutes and show them or let them experience that themselves. And immediately they will understand, maybe they even start playing around with the prototype and understand what programming or designing and code is actually. Uh, so the question was um, with sort of the, the all the craziness and change in terms of um, design and development process these days, what processes do we find work best for us? Um, when I worked at an agency uh, where we were responsible for cranking out projects like every six to eight weeks, um, and we worked in a waterfall format, um, a lot of times uh, the developers are like holding the bag of shit at the end. Um, and that sucks for everybody. Um, so one of the things I started doing is... Um, as like the oftentimes the only developer on a project, just go sit with the designer. And if you have time, um, start building before the design is done. So that way, sort of like you're half building and half prototyping, 
you have a much more active say in what goes into the design and the whole thing just becomes a much more collaborative process. And there's a lot more ownership on both sides in terms of like who's responsible for um, the product success. Um, in my talk about uh, pattern libraries, I, I talked about leveraging that versus um, a typical uh, waterfall uh, process. And I think um, I work in a very, with a very small team. Um, so I have that experience on sort of the smaller size. Um, but I've found there's a lot of advantages to doing that versus a traditional waterfall where it goes through discovery and UX and design and, and eventually development. Um, putting those pattern libraries together early in the project um, does a lot of things. It allows clients to see what the site is going to look like. It allows them to interact with the site in the browser, whether it's code pin or an actual URL. Um, then there's a lot of advantages there versus um, putting a whole string of static mockups in front of people and then saying, hey, review this PDF. Uh, you can't interact with it. You, you know, it's not living yet. Um, but if you put something that's alive and living in the browser, um, I, I found you get a lot better response and, and feedback from um, stakeholders in a project. Um, so one of the things I've, I've found with um, agile development is that it often just turns into a bunch of mini waterfalls um, in that like, hey, we're going to have a sprint. We're going to start off with some design and still pass it off to developers. But it's in a two week cycle or a one week cycle instead of a three to six month cycle. Um, I find that the process that works well for me um, and uh, it's I, I like authority um, so if people just listen to me things go really well so again we've heard is a very large company we have over 30 CSS people so the uh, we had um, our Kanban which didn't work for us people just uh, uh, send all of the uh, uh, code which needs to be styled to the uh, big pile of CSS tickets, it didn't work for us. Then we switched to uh, um, sprints. Sprints work kind of well. We decided to do CSS sprints, and then we had a separate uh, board of uh, CSS tickets, and which is supposed to finish within two weeks. And that didn't work well as well. Why? Because uh, one uh, feature is not the um, entire sprint, right? Um, you have to work with other people. You have to work with designers. You have to work with backend. So what we decided, we actually have uh, all the team on the sprint, and we have our design on the sprint as well. And designer sprints goes to uh, one sprint before um, development sprint. In this case, we actually can uh, work together simultaneously on the design and development. And every single person on the team uh, try to be more or less comfortable with writing JavaScript, PHP, and CSS. That will help us to actually deliver a really good product. So I worked at a big company where we had a, a giant design system and style sheet, um, style guide, which I think is really, really important. And a lot of people have covered that territory already. Um, but when I came in, the style guide was primarily built for developers. And the designers had sketch files and Photoshop documents. And those would deviate. And so I think that the biggest thing that we did that ended up being really useful was, first of all, align the two so that the designers aren't mocking up something that we're not actually able to build in code, or it, we could, but it deviates. Um, and the other thing is making the style guides as much a resource for designers as it was for developers, having like things that people could down, like Photoshop and sketch things that are like that. They, they could download right from the guide, and like having designer notes as well as developer notes because before it was kind of like, you know, moving courses. Um, so that ended up being really great. I think there was also like a key member of the design team who was very, very emotionally and intelligent and a good conversationalist and people liked talking to them. If you can hire someone on your team who's in charge of looking at the overall structure of design and development who people like talking to, um, that person, I mean, for me, that person ended up being really pivotal because they were so, like, they just brought people together and people had better conversations around them. Um, so it, that's a hard one to interview for, but um, valuable. Uh, I won't say what everyone says because I, I agree with that, but the only thing uh, I think that wasn't mentioned was having sketch sessions. So, like, if you have a big idea that's going to come out, 
we get all the de- we get like the important stakeholders on like developer development product and design into a room and then we say we get the feedback from product like this is the problem that we're trying to solve and then we say this is what the problem this is what uh, this is how we're handling that problem and it's not solving it and then we you know we just start sketching things on paper and putting that together and then that gets everyone kind of in the mindset early early enough like okay how are we going to build this and then we can go and talk to our teams because we don't know who's going to build it yet so like we can talk about like hey they want to do this what do you think and get that conversation started earlier and maybe even at that point start to put things in the pattern library if it's going to be a new pattern so that when design actually does catch up to that when they're actually done with like specking and stuff like that um then we can just hit the ground running and maybe even pair to just finish that part off because you want to limit like that we call it VQA, like visual QA. You want to limit that time as much as possible because then they're always going to be like, you know, you don't want any of that. Like you want to get ahead as early as possible. So you don't end in this endless cycle of VQA, which is awful. So for me, um, as a pretty uh, creative coder, I guess, um, um, sometimes I'm not too well organized. So I kind of require somebody to do the organization for me. And I think the bigger a project gets, the more people are working in one project. And I've worked in agencies where every team has their own idea of a process. The ones that worked best were the ones where I had a good project manager that would interact with every designer, with every developer, with every UX engineer, didn't matter. And they themselves had some knowledge about technology, how it would work. Um, I like working with a big backlog and beside that, a queue. So when I decide for myself that I've, I'm done with one special task and I want to start working on the next one, I can always look inside the queue, see, oh, there are like four issues that are in the top hands which are fully related. I can just take those issues, work on them, have my freedom, and everybody's happy. But that only happens or this can only be possible if somebody managed the entire uh, stuff that's, that's needed to actually create this uh, nice structure. I can't do it because it's, it's a full-time job. You can have the best process. You can follow the best process that is by the book and everything. But if you're not paying attention to the culture of your team, it's never going to work. And so um, we have this tendency to try and apply solutions to um, generic things. And So what I'm trying to say is we try to apply a the same solution to different problems. But the thing is, we're all people, and people have different styles of working. They have different uh, skill sets and everything. So uh, if you look at Kanban versus uh, Scrum versus Waterfall, um, it really depends on the team and what the team is made up and how big the team is and who the team is working on. So uh, the other thing I wanted to say with that is if you focus on being open, being transparent, and trusting your teammates, like everything else is going to fall into place from that. Um, but th- that's a big thing to have to do. It's because it requires a lot of trust, a lot of honesty, and um, a lot of vulnerability to, um, especially when it comes to a job, to say, this process isn't working for me. I know it's working for everybody else, but for some reason it's not working for me. And that's a really difficult thing to say because that's like your livelihood, you know, your salary that, you, that you're... Um, is sustaining you going forward. Um, so it's a big risk to take, but um, it has a lot of benefits if you can do it. So the question is, so it's just job description, huh? Am I right? <laughs> yeah. So, and then how can we make them better? Uh, so, well, how do we write better job descriptions? How do we recruit better people? So um, don't let somebody in like HR or marketing write the job description. I got one on LinkedIn this week where in the job description was um, you'll be maintaining multiple projects at breakneck speeds. It was like really salesy and like, who wants to do that? Like that work-life balance sounds awful. So I think it's important to, to make your culture, the culture of the actual team working kind of speak through in in your uh, job description because that's, at least for me, more 
important. Am, am I going to like where I am and who I'm with? Then really like, is this going to sound really good on my resume when I leave this job in two months? Because it's, you know, breakneck speed, do all the work all the time. And then uh, as far as recruiting, I've always found meetups are really good. Like if you find people that are inspirational to you and you want to learn from, why wouldn't you want to go learn from them 40 hours a week as opposed to one hour every three months? Uh, so I think if you teach your recruiter or your HR um, to look at a resume, if it lists more than 10 skills, it might not be the developer you're looking at because somebody who lists 50 skills, sorry. I list three skills, CSS, HTML, JavaScript. That's it. You, you just like... I think that's the, the Ramsey theory of menu design right there. Don't eat at places that have more than five specialties on the menu because they can't possibly be doing them all well. Uh, that, that's, that's actually really interesting. Oftentimes when I see a job listing like that, I see a lot of conflicting interests. Like either there are a lot of stakeholders and there's not enough budget to get everybody what they want, or they don't know what they want and they're going to interview a lot of people until they find out what they want. So writing that kind of job description is really self-defeating because anyone who's smart and wants to invest their interview time wisely is going to pass on a description like that for something that's, oh, they want three things. They know they want the master who makes excellent gifts. Um, yeah, as a person who, who was entertaining the possibility of going in-house and eventually did, I assure you there were not ten skills listed on any job description for me. I don't have an answer to that so much as a mini hand. <laughs> but I, I think we have, uh, I think uh, Rachel's talk yesterday morning um, talked about how, you know, 10, 20 years ago when, when a lot of us were getting started, the web was simple and you just needed to know a few things. And, and now it's reached this point of complex maturity. And I don't think um, in our industry that the job titles have caught up to that. We just say full stack developer or front end engineer. And, and both of those things encompass so much um, that I, I don't think we, we, we've subdivided it and figured out how to, how to like define the lines between the roles that need to be. But I, I think our industry is going to have to figure that out um, into the future because just, there's just too much. One person can't do it all. And I, our job titles don't divide it up in a way that, that makes sense yet. Um, so, I, I mean, hiring is a difficult thing just in general like uh i mean one you're often uh going through this interview process uh, you know trying to fill specific gaps right now but often what you want in a person is not who they are today but who they will be a year or two years from now you know a, a role that they can grow into and so often job descriptions are like here is a hundred things that we would love a person to be able to know um and not that the, there's that expectation that they'll come in knowing all those things, uh, but it's difficult, right? Like I, I you know, I've, I've read studies where uh, men will look at a job description, see ten things listed, you know, five of them, and go, "This job is perfect for me." Where women look at that and go, "I don't match everything. I'm not going to apply for that job." And that's a very difficult. Like, how do you tailor against that? Um, there are so many different facets. I mean, as well, uh, it almost feels like dating, right? Like you're, you're trying to, you know, I'm filling out an online profile and you're trying to write something that is going to entice the right person. Um, so you, you want to be, sometimes you want to be vague, sometimes you want to be specific, uh, but ultimately you're not going to know until you meet that person face to face, right? Um, and so what can you do to get more people in the door that are qualified, that have skills that are, that have that passion for learning that you know is going to be able to grow into the role. That's the kind of thing, you know, hopefully that we can find, but I don't think there's going to be a perfect solution to, to that problem. So I get a lot of uh, recruiter emails, so I see a lot of shit I don't reply to. Um, so, it, like you were saying, it's a two-way street. So it's, to me, it's kind of like matchmaking. It's, it shouldn't be the company looking for the Russian bride. It should be you trying to sell why you're so awesome as well and saying, you know, that you're funded by Kleiner Perkins and you have uh, your CEOs from Stanford. It's like, tell me why I would actually enjoy working there. 
Um, so, you know, like they list 150 skills and you have 75 of them, you're like, oh, I can't apply that. Um, you don't list 150 skills. It's basically you want someone who's intelligent and creative, and I never see those, and communicates well and gets along well with others. I never see that on a job description. And to me, that's who I want to work with, because if you're intelligent, you can learn the other things that you don't know yet. Um, but mostly, why would I actually want to work there? And it's not the funder. It's, you know, like, in my priority of what I want to, what a place I want to work, the product is not number one, and the funding level is not number one. It's, is my boss going to be awesome? Are my coworkers going to be awesome? Am I going to learn a lot? Is it a tech stack that I like? And it's in that order. And then is the product awesome? And then is the funding? Um, yeah, and you need to pay me too. Um, but if, if you know if, if everything's awesome, you can pay me ten thousand dollars less because I'm going to be so happy that I'm not going to drink ten thousand dollars worth of alcohol a year. Um, so if you want to learn by example, um, hopefully it's still up. Uh, but Vox Media's or Vox Products um, VP of Engineering uh, job description. Not that I'm looking for a VP job, or that many of us are, but it was really well-written, um, really sold why the company would be a really good place to work. And I really appreciated that they stressed that hiring for diversity is part of the job, and that was in the job description twice. Um, and I just want to stress that uh, building a diverse team sets you up for success in so many hard intangible ways. Um, having been on a team that was particularly diverse and seen those benefits and um, the energy and differences of, pin of opinion that can lead to interesting and creative solutions is just so, so important. And if you're in a hiring role, that's something you should keep your eye on. Did you talk to them? <laughs> so like... And, and that's that's not to be a stab, but it's a thing. It's like you can ask. Oh, sorry. It was about, um, uh, um, you know, how how to make environments, I guess, more welcoming to underrepresented groups that, you know, in in industries or companies that are currently like all men. More or less, yeah. Okay, <laughs> just want to make sure. Um, yeah, I think one talking about what's not going right for them and what they wish to see more is a very easy thing to do that a lot of people just don't do. Um, like when we were hiring and, you know, we were keeping that in mind, our director of engineering never really asked, like, is there something wrong <laughs> with, like, what we're doing? They just assumed that, like, oh, we have the right job description and post it in the right places, we'll get it. Um, but it's as much about like talking to the groups that you do have and making sure that they're going to stay, um, number one, and to, to you know, help with ideas to how to make it better. So uh, that just ask, like talk to them, communicate. The theme of a lot of these answers have, has been communicate, uh, in communication and talk to the people who are there. You know, don't, don't, uh, don't test on the people in your office, test on real users, communicate with them, et cetera. One thing I remember was uh, not being involved in hiring processes. So as a woman, I might like to work with more people who are like me in different ways, whether it's being the same age range or having the same life interests, et cetera. But if I'm not a part of a hiring process or a part of that decision, people will be onboarded who I don't relate to at all, and I'll just end up feeling more isolated and more alone. And that can end up turning into a downward spiral of withdrawal for a lot of people. And I know I have friends who've gone through this. So my question would be, have you considered uh, involving more of the minorities at your company in the hiring process? Maybe they will see things in people that the people who are doing the hiring do not because you still got less than 20%. And that's a crying shame. I totally agree that you should involve the people who are not all identical on your um hiring process during the interview, but don't, so I've gone to many interviews where they put in the token female, like they don't have any women engineers, so they have me go to lunch with, 
you know, someone completely unrelated, here's like our token female. And I'm like, I, that was like a major turnoff. Um, because I'm like, you're just faking it. Um, so it's not just, you know, like there's a pipeline, you can bring them in. And if they're not happy, they're going to leave. Um, you know, I've left many jobs. And I, and I inform them why I leave when I leave. Um, but it would have been better if they had asked me. Or, and I did actually, you know, like, I tell them during the process, like, this is not working for me. So step number one, tampons and, and sanitary napkins in the toilet. And not the airplane brand, but real brands. It's, I mean, like, I actually, when I go to interview, I always go to the bathroom and I check what they have there. Because as stupid as that sounds, it means like either you don't give a shit or you do give a shit. Um, and, um, and then where are you recruiting? So if you're sending something to Reddit, that tells me, like if I see a job posted on Reddit, even if it's posted someplace else, I'm like, I don't want that job. Uh, I, I know Reddit has nice channels. I've yet to find them. Um, I'm kidding. But... You know, there's different places. Uh, and also, check your Glassdoor. Glassdoor, um, I did not work for a company. I got a job offer for a company, and I read their Glassdoor. And one of them s said that there was no room to grow. And I'm like, well, that's kind of shitty. And I had looked at all of their uh, About Us page, and it was all, I had never seen a group of more men with blue eyes. I'm like, where did they find all these people with blue eyes? Um, so it's all men except for, uh, all white men with blue eyes except for one um, Indian man who was in charge in Bangalore. And I'm like, this doesn't look good, but let me read their glass door. And one of the comments was from an engineer uh, that said that the only, you know, like the only way you, uh, you move up the ladder is to sleep your way to the top. Now, it wasn't the fact that someone slept their way to the top, because if that's what they want to do, that's fine with me. It was the fact that that is the way the engineers were talking about the women in their industry that way. And I'm like, there's no way in hell that I'm going to work for this company. So read your Glassdoor. You can find everything out about your toxicity in your own company on Glassdoor. If you're not reading Glassdoor, um, you know, it, people aren't going to tell you. Like when you, when you do the, we just had in our company, the, you know, an assessment and you could say what you wanted. I'm like, you can't say what you want. I'm like, how many developer evangelists are there? There's one. Okay, you know it's me. So I'm not going to complain about anyone. Um, and I did subtly, uh, but I'm not going to be blatant about it. Uh, but ask. You know, if you see a subtle hint, ask. Uh, and also, I'm sorry I'm going on too long, but it's like, uh, uh, when you hear toxic talk at work, no matter what it is, don't allow that to happen. Because if one person is talking, other person is not saying anything, then it becomes okay to be toxic in your environment. And by toxic, I don't mean saying sexist comments. I mean saying anyone is stupid or anyone is, you know, like at my company, I, I do say like there's one person who drives me crazy, and, but I don't say that he is a bad person. I say this example of the job that this person did on this topic is not going to work. And so it's the work that's not good. You know, it's that project. It's not the person. Um, so when you hear people bad-mouthing each other, it just brings everything um, down. And I don't think it's just women that are hypersensitive to that. I think that 50% of the men in the office are also hypersensitive to that. So when you say women don't feel comfortable, you also have 50% of the men who feel comfortable. Um, so it sounds like it's a women's issue, but it's basically getting rid of the men that are more sensitive as well. Sorry. Another thing um, that I think is really important is to try to look at your team and see if you are putting women in traditionally female roles. So uh, I don't know if you're a lady and, you know, you're part of a tech meeting and then someone says, hey, can you take notes? That's, uh, that's not very inclusive. And again, it's, it's putting women in those traditional sort of roles. So like if, if that's something that you see happening, uh, as you know, as an ally, you can say, well, you know, why why is she being asked to take notes? Maybe I can take notes. Uh, or maybe you can also push back and say, you know what, um, I'm not a great note taker or whatever. I would prefer if someone else did it. Uh, just little things like that. Uh, I know I have uh, female friends who get asked things like, you know, they're 
they're a developer, but they get asked to, you know, plan the office party, <laughs> things like that, uh, just because, you know, they're female and these are traditionally female roles. Uh, so I would say, you know, watch out for that in your own company and try to, um, you know, as an ally, try to put a stop to that. But then also, um, this sort of reminds me of some of the stuff that we have to do as women to get our voices heard. There's, um, there's a great article that came out uh, maybe a few weeks ago about uh, two women in the Obama administration who supported each other uh, by, you know, inviting the other person to a meeting uh, just so that they could sort of vouch uh, for the other person's idea. So one thing that happens to me all the time uh, is that I'll, I'll throw out an idea to the team and it's just like, okay, and then someone else says it and they're like, great idea. Has this ever happened to you? Because it happens to me a lot. Uh, so Asan, like, what, what these women did is that they would say, like, okay, well, I'm going to this meeting. I'm going to invite this other person, and she's my ally. And it doesn't have to be a woman. It can be just someone else that will have your back. So you can, again, you find sort of, like, your, your buddy uh, that can sort of also say, like, you know what? Repeat the idea so that it can sort of, like, be heard. Uh, and that can sort of, like, help get more voices uh, that are diverse in the team. Um, if you don't have someone that you can count as your ally or, or your buddy, um, and maybe you are someone that really cares about like getting diverse voices in your team heard, you can always try to reach out to people who are not speaking up and just say like, "Hey, what do you think?" I'm 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 curious to to hear your thoughts, and that's another way that you know if if you really do want to like help out your teammates, um, that, that's a that's something that we can all do. Uh, to try to get more diverse voices heard. Uh, just going to add on to that, even if you don't have a buddy, if there's a person who rarely speaks up or if they speak up and they're spoken over or you see someone else kind of trotting out one of their ideas and claiming it as their own by omission, which, let's be honest, that happens so much. It doesn't matter who you are, it's happened to you. Just try to give credit where credit is due. Be like, oh yeah, I remember... Uh, so-and-so was talking about that last week. That is a great idea. We should act on it. Just give a little bit of credit, a little shout-out to whoever you remember saying it last. It can go a long way to making people feel like they actually are putting information in and getting a little head nod over it. I, I know you didn't said no men, but uh, I'm not going to solve the problem. I'm going to say something to the men in the room. If you're in a meeting and you see a woman getting talked over, stop that dude. He... Because if he does that to you, you can sort of talk over him, but a lot of women can't. Um, you know, we saw that in the debate. One person can raise their voice a lot louder and talk over the other person, and that's just that's just rude, so just stop that person. Excuse me. Um, since one man talked, I, I think... <laughs> no. uh, so, I actually worked years in, in the in the opposite um, kind of way. Uh, I, 12 years of my life, I worked as a hairdresser. So I was one man in a, in a school of uh, 30 people. And it was very hard in the beginning because as a man in a hairdresser job, sometimes you get looked at funny. Uh, what really made me appreciate working in that environment, it was a lot of fun getting acceptance and I think that's what uh, what Rachel also said that acceptance is what will help uh, kind of make the people feel good about what they're doing so the question is how do you what resources do you give beginners to start yeah. I love Codecademy um, I've been a part of their community for a very long time and uh, that's where I point people um, at the beginning because it's a free resource you can get your feet wet without having to do a lot of like environment setup and stuff like that and then once you're past that you go to code school or something like that or go to a boot camp or something something along those lines but with people that are getting into it the biggest thing that I reiterate is no one knows everything the biggest friend to developers is Google and Stack Overflow and CSS tricks um, so don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid when you don't know something and ask questions. When you can. I uh, know you asked about resources, but honestly, and this might just be me or it might apply to many of you, but one of the fastest and best ways I've learned 
is actually stumbling and falling, trying to do something, like just trying to do projects. Uh, one of the first projects I tried to do was make my own bootstrap, which is a terrible idea. Don't do it. Um, but I learned a heck of a lot about CSS. And then just doing things where you want to copy something cool that you see online or on Dribble Dance or even on CodePen, just dig through the code and just challenge yourself to make something. And you're going to learn super fast that way. And also attending local meetups and teaching something because there's no better way to force yourself to learn than to be thinking, all right, I have to know everything or else I'm going to be judged by all these people. I love this question because um, I re recently, uh, I've been in tech for about seven years, uh, but recently I transitioned from doing like a lot of tech adjacent things like marketing or like design uh, and then to being a full-time like developer. Uh, and part of, uh, part of what helped my transition was going to a coding bootcamp. Uh, so, so having, having done that journey, um, I, can, I can definitely tell you that I meet a lot of people who are interested in coming into this industry. And I have found out that some people are legitimately interested in what we do. And some people are interested in the pay. Uh, because a lot of these boot camps are for profit. And you know, I'm, I'm saying this in the nicest way possible, having attended one. A lot of these uh, for profit boot camps are touting things like get a job making X amount of money. And a lot of people get that messaging and they, they want to do it. And again, I feel like they're doing it for the wrong reasons. If, and if that's why you're doing it, you're probably not going to have a great time uh, learning. You're probably, you know what I mean? Like, so I, my first question is like, what about coding um, makes you interested in this as a career? Uh, and then understanding something like that can help you guide them because maybe they're like, I really enjoy um, troubleshooting problems. Okay, well, that, that to me sounds like maybe you would enjoy maybe more like a back-end sort of thing. Uh, maybe someone that says something like, oh, I'm really interested in like, uh, you know, user sort of like interaction. Oh, okay, well, you might be a great UX designer or front-end developer or whatever. So like talking to them first and understanding what it is about tech that they enjoy can help you sort of let them know where to go and what they might enjoy too. Um, in terms of actual resources that you can use, not sure which city you're from, but uh, Girl Develop It is actually a great resource, not just for women, but we teach anybody um, as long as you, you know, stick to our code of conduct, which is essentially be nice to people. <laughs> and our classes are meant to be affordable and accessible. Uh, so I would honestly recommend anybody, whether they're uh, male or female, to check out uh, a girl development in your, in your city and see if uh, they might have uh, some upcoming classes coming up. Another one uh, that I recommend is Free Code Camp. Um, I think it's freecodecamp.com. Uh, and I feel like that's also a great way to sort of like get your feet wet. They have a really good online community because sometimes when you're doing this and you're doing it on your own, there's no accountability. And if you don't know someone to ask a question, you'll just quit. But what, one thing that I do like about Free Code Camp is that they have an online Slack where people can go and ask questions and sort of support each other. And they also have uh, different like groups in different cities uh, so that you know, people can meet in person and work on the, on the problems together. So that's another good resource. Um, so you said that there's a perception that like, coding is, is really hard. And that's, that's not a perception. It, this, it is really hard. Um, all of us have had many sleepless nights. All of us have devoted our entire lives to web development. It is really hard. But I think that there needs to be, um, like when you're starting coding, you need to know that I'm not going to be building Netflix in the next week. I need to start building little things. And, and coming from the guy who sells courses, I'm going to tell you, there's no course, there's no book, there's no thing that you can do that you put under your pillow and wake up the next morning and be really, really good at it. It's just about hustling and putting in the time and building lots and lots of things. That's all. That's the only way you're going to get good is if you just keep building stuff. Um, so I tell people to um, to learn a certain way, um, but I don't tell everyone. And I don't know if I'm right, but what I say is spend two days on um, on HTML before you actually build anything, because. I learned doing view source because before you could actually do a view source and there was HTML there. Um, now there is a div that says content and then everything is put in. Uh, so basically, 
you need to know what your JavaScript is producing, what code you are generating. And it's hard to learn that nowadays by doing a view source. So I really encourage people to go back to the basics and spend two full days. Because you can learn HTML in like an hour and a half. Um, but if you spend two full days learning the elements and the attributes, you're going to be a much better developer later on. Um, and then spending two to three days on CSS. You're not going to learn CSS in two to three days. I've been at it for uh, 17 years, and I don't know it yet. So when I've, I'll tell you how long it takes when I finally learn it all. Um, but two days, two to three days, you can do your basic average site, um, and then learn actual JavaScript, not jQuery, not React, not Angular. Spend five days or something like that reading um, the first version of JavaScript in this manual, not the second version, which is basically a jQuery textbook. The first one actually, in the first five chapters, teaches you 90% of what you need to know to make your average website. And what I suggest people do is find a local nonprofit or a school or a you know, school group and build a website for them. Um, and then build another website and a third website. Simple, static sites. If you get a kick out of it, then this is something you want to do with your life. If you're not enjoying it, find something else. Because my career advice to everyone all the time is, what are you doing in your spare time? So the reason I ended up being a web developer is because I was running a health center. Totally related, right? Um, and I built the website for the um, health center and then this nonprofit that I was, and I'm like, this is way more fun than dealing with people. Um, and, you know, and the rest is history. But it was basically, the reason I started running a health center was because when I was an architect, I was doing HIV prevention education. I'm like, God, I wish I could get paid to do HIV prevention education. You can. Um, so basically, whatever you're doing, whatever you're passionate about, if it's not web development, if you're doing something on the side, but if your friend who uh, says, I want to be a web developer, what are, you know, like, after they do three sites, if they're not totally into it, it's not for them. But uh, find your passion, and you can get paid for your passion. <laughs>